0: Hey, it's Harry. Happy New Year, everybody. This week, we expect Joe Biden to announce his selections for top DOJ brass, including Solicitor General. So, we're going to air an episode we recorded about a year ago at George Washington University on that position that previously was available only to our Patreon listeners. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And don't forget to catch up with our episode from last week on the Georgia elections before Tuesday's all important runoffs. And now I give you the very model of a modern solicitor general. Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General. We're here all week in Washington, D.C., coinciding with the opening of the first impeachment hearings in a generation to tape a series of podcast episodes in front of a live audience just blocks from the White House. All this thanks to our gracious hosts at George Washington University Law School. A general mission of Talking Feds is to explain the goings-on within the Department of Justice, between the Department of Justice and Congress, between the Department of Justice and the White House. So much of the last three years have centered there, but coverage doesn't often allow for a step back and an explanation. And today is a key example. We've heard a lot in the last few years about the position of the Solicitor General maybe even heard some basics. The Solicitor General is the Executive Branch's lawyer in the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General is the fourth in command at the Department of Justice. The Solicitor General by statute is learned in the law. We're going to try to explain this office more. It has huge importance in the development of constitutional law the relations between the president and the Congress and the courts and may well figure integrally in the Trump impeachment and general investigations to come. We are unbelievably fortunate uh, in the panel. We have to discuss this. Not one, not two, but three former solicitors general, starting with Seth Waxman, the 41st solicitors general are known by their number. Uh, he was the 41st Solicitor General serving under President Clinton from 1997 to 2001, where I was proud and fortunate to work with him, at least on occasion. He is currently a partner at Wilmer Hale. Uh, he was named in January 2016 by the American Lawyer Litigator of the Year, and he's been named Litigation First Amendment Lawyer of the Year, according to the firm's website, for 2020. So that must have been some sensational work because nominations have effectively been closed for the next uh, 14 months. Seth, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) Next, Paul Clement, the 43rd Solicitor General who served under President George W. Bush from June 2005 until June 2008. Paul is currently a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Kirkland and Ellis, as well as a lecturer at Georgetown Law. He has argued nearly 100 Supreme Court cases and has argued since 2000 more than any lawyer in or out of government. Paul, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. And Don Verrilli, the 46th Solicitor General under President Obama, serving from June 2011 to June 2016, He's currently the founding partner of the Washington, D.C. office of Munger, Tolles & Olson. He had, as did all three of the Solicitors General here, extensive DOJ experience before becoming SG, and Don also was Deputy White House Counsel before he became SG. Don, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Harry. Great to be here. All right. So let's dive in. I'm a prosecutor. That's my my sort of stock and trade from from the podcast, but I'm also a nerd. And in my tribe, the highest pinnacle is the Solicitor General, it, the government's lead lawyer in the Supreme Court. For the people I know and I'm friendly with and that you might or might not want to have a drink with, it doesn't get any better than being the Solicitor General of the United States. On the other hand, probably the leading article on the Solicitor General in history describes it as this little-known figure in the Justice Department, and so extremely prominent among a cadre of people, but otherwise somewhat obscure, though many important people have been S.G., William Taft, John Davis, Francis Biddle, Thurgood Marshall, for whom I clerked and who reported for everything he had done. All the private work in the South, in the civil rights era, court of appeals, judge, Supreme Court justice, the best job he ever had in his life was Solicitor General. Robert Bork, Ted Olson, Elena Kagan, etc. cetera. So we want to really delve into this very, very special position. And if you can suffer us to do this, because it's probably not the first time for anyone here we want to go through a little bit just the nuts and bolts of the office and what's involved. So the Solicitor Generals are expert in capturing complex ideas succinctly. I want to start by asking, how would you describe the job in a sentence? Anybody? I would say that the sol- one sentence, wow,
1: Um it's going to
2: be it? hard for That's you. It? Yeah. That's okay. it. Wow. That was it? Yeah. Wow. There's the,
1: no. the solicitor general is the lead strategist and tactician for litigation on behalf of the United States and its agencies.
0: So interesting, by the way. So Seth leads with this notion of strategist and tactician. Because, of course, you know, a big thing the SG does is argue in the Supreme Court, but you've given a kind of broader mission statement having to do with strategist and tactician. And generally, panoramically, do do the two of you, you know, buy that sentence? Yeah, I would. I
3: uh, would I would endorse it in that, you know, everybody thinks that the solicitor general, though, you know, those who think anything at all about right. solicitor general think of, well, that's the person up at the lectern, you know, on the big cases for the United States. And obviously, that's a really important part of the job and extraordinarily satisfying part of the job. But in my experience, and I'm sure uh, my friends here had the same experience, that's actually just a fraction of the time you spend in the job. A significant majority of the time you spend in the job is carrying out the function that Seth described.
0: The significant majority is the other stuff that we're now talking about for for you. So let's general comment. That's what they call them when they stand up. You you may proceed, general comment. No, I think it's a great sentence and I think you know I had the same instinct that you know the
2: the sort of easy sentence is to say the solicitor general is the executive branch's lawyer in front of the Supreme Court of the United States and that captures as Don was saying the kind of big public part of the job but if you if you tallied up the hours that would be a very very small part of the job and a big way in which the strategy gets implemented is through the solicitor general's decisions about which cases where the government has lost in the lower courts that the government is going to take to the next level, be it the Court of Appeals or the full court or the Supreme Court. And at least when I was in the office, that was there were about 2,000 of those appeal recommendation decisions a year. And you know, when I was bored one day, I worked out the math, and that works out to about six a day, every day, including weekends. So you spend a lot more time doing what the president, whom for whom I worked, would call strategery, Yeah. <laughs> uh, than you do uh, the actual argument.
0: Okay, and and of course you have a staff, a fairly small staff, right? About twenty five or so, but they are extraordinarily talented uh, lawyers. But still, this part falls to you. I just want to clarify a point. So the so one responsibility for the solicitor general is to decide he may he or she. There's been one woman um, now, Justice Kagan says you cannot take if you've lost and you're in the United States and you want to take it to the Court of Appeals, the Solicitor General has to approve that. And there are all these big meetings I participated in as U.S. attorney where we're saying you have to take this and the law and you know civilization depend on it. What are you generally thinking about in your strategic and tactical role? You get, I, I assume of those six uh, a day, a solid 75% are not real candidates but there's a, a lot of serious candidates what are, what is your sort of mindset when you're can, going through it can i can i suggest that we just step back a second
1: for for the listeners yes. and let them understand exactly how the, what purpose the office was created for and how the current functioning effectuates that Please. so When the Constitution was ratified, the attorney general was one of four original cabinet positions that was created. Unlike the other cabinet positions, which were secretary of state, secretary of the treasury and secretary of war, the attorney general was actually not given a department to be the head of Um, the attorney general. There were U.S. attorneys created in each district in the United States. They didn't actually report to the Attorney General. The Attorney General didn't even have a secretary or a clerk. At the time, it was considered to be a part-time position, and the thinking was that whoever the Attorney General was would be able to generate lots and lots of private business on the side just by mentioning that, oh, uh, I'm also the Attorney General of the United (laughs) States. That would work pretty well. And in fact, Edmund Randolph, who was the first Attorney General, argued many cases in the Supreme Court on behalf of private clients, some of the most famous cases in U.S. constitutional history. The situation became pretty untenable as the years went on, as litigation involving the government and supervision of the U.S. attorneys became more and more important. And in particular, the Supreme Court became uh, quite annoyed and expressed it in various oblique ways in its opinions and and statements of the justices of the fact that the United States generally would just hire lawyers wherever it had litigation, private lawyers to get up and argue the case for the United States. And there was no thought given by those private attorneys as to what the long-term institutional interests of the United States were. So you can imagine a judge in a court, you know, in a federal court in, Tennessee would ask the very same question of the lawyer representing the United States that a judge in Massachusetts would ask the lawyer representing the United States with no guarantee or indeed likelihood that you would get the same answer on behalf of the United States as to what federal law means. And so a principal purpose that the Office of the Solicitor General was created was to Which is create a, about like
0: 1870,
1: is that right? Yeah, it was after the Civil War right. when there was, as all great wars produce a ton of litigation. <laughs> Everybody was unhappy that the Union soldiers or the Confederate soldiers were on their property and eating their food and disturbing their peace. The Congress was concerned because it was costing a fortune to hire all these private lawyers. The Supreme Court was really annoyed because there was no likelihood that even in the Supreme Court, you could get a straight answer about what the United States government believed any particular question, how any particular question of federal law should be answered. So at the time the Solicitor General's Office was created, it was created to perform the function of trying its best to ensure That when any lawyer representing any department or agency of the United States was in any court in the United States and asked a question about the meaning or proper interpretation of federal law, that court would get the same answer no matter where it was or what kind of case it was in. And the way that the SG's office for many, many decades has performed that function, is not only being in control over everything that is filed by the United States and said by the United States or any of its agencies in the Supreme Court, but also the following. As you mentioned, no government lawyer can appeal anything to any court unless the Solicitor General personally approves. No amicus brief can be filed by any lawyer, that's a friend of the court brief, by any lawyer in any appellate court unless the Solicitor General approves. And the United States cannot intervene in a private action concerning the constitutionality of any particular law Unless the solicitor general, especially in the district court level. And the purpose here is you can't have one person or one office that reviews every brief that's going out in order to make sure that it's giving the, quote, party line. But you can establish these choke points, which everybody in the government is aware of. And nobody wants to get to the point where when it finally comes to the SG, they're told, (laughs) that was your law, that was your interpretation, <laughs> right. but we're going to go in and tell the court that you were mistaken. And that's how, that's what the office really does.
0: That's that's enormously helpful. And I, I really should have started there. Okay. So let's dovetail then with the point that all three of you agreed on that in terms of time, uh, this function is actually the, well, not just time, but I would say importance. It's the bigger one. And and Seth mentioned two big parts of it. One, and I've participated in both. So if the, there may sometimes be a whole confab around the long conference table in the SG's room where different stakeholders, maybe different agencies, are urging to take an appeal or not, that's a big one. But then I've also more rarely been at that same table when a court has taken a case and the SG has to decide specifically the nuances of the position that that the government will adopt before the court and you have clients I mean one remarkable thing here is the clients don't make the final call it's all you the clients come and talk to the SG and then the SG tells them what what how it's going to go but of those sort of two big chunks of strategy and tactics how how, which which is a a bigger uh, part of the your day and week.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think they're pretty close to being equal. I think they're both really important, and I think you know they're, they're related. And maybe I'll take a crack at the appeal process a little bit, and maybe Don wants to talk about getting everybody right. in a room um, and figuring out what the position is in a case where the court has just granted a private party case where there's an important government interest. But in the appeal process, I mean, you're obviously looking for a number of things, including, as Seth said, you want to take – consistent positions across all the cases. You know, sometimes there's are circumstances where government lawyers can be tempted to make an argument that's penny wise and pound foolish. It works for that case. You know, every once in a while, there's a government case where not asking for too much deference to a regulation might actually help, but it's a disaster in the long run. So part of what you're trying to do is make sure people are looking out for the long-term interests of the federal government. Another big thing you're trying to do though, is to keep cases out of the Supreme Court where you're going to lose and you're going to damage the long-term interest of the federal government. And so you know you were talking about your service as US attorney and I remember a couple of pretty vivid discussions I had with a US. attorney who wanted to appeal something, and the office was inclined to say no and the usct's uh, office right. the sg's office right and 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 you know i'd have this conversation i'd get a call it was often somebody i knew a little bit personally and they'd be like paul <laughs> just i know the circuit
0: <laughs> that solid. we're taking
2: yeah. this up to and if 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 you authorize this appeal i i can win in my regional circuit and as often as not my response is yeah that's what i'm worried All about right. <laughs> because if you win in the court of appeals then The private party gets the choice as to whether to file a cert petition. The SG loses the opportunity to decide whether to file a cert petition. And if part of the reason I don't want to take this position is a government lawyer tried it a few years back in another circuit and lost. So if you win, there's a circuit split then if I authorize this appeal, I'm pretty much guaranteeing that this is a position we'd have to defend in the Supreme Court if you win. And that's what we don't want to do. Because so, the
0: court, when it decides what to review, a very big thing is, is there a circuit split? Have the courts of appeals gone different ways?
2: Yeah. yeah. So I think, at least in, 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 in my experience, a big part of what you were doing in that appeal recommendation process was trying to – take the positions that made sense for the long-term interests of the federal government, but also trying to weed out some of the cases that it's not just that they would result in a loss for the office or for the client agency, which is bad enough, but they'd make bad law that would then be a problem for the entire federal government.
3: Right. It, this other so before I talk about that, I want to pick up <laughs> on something that both these guys said. You know, that system that Seth described and that Paul just discussed how you implement, there's a hole in that system, uh, which is... Cases where the United States, and, and they're mostly criminal cases, <laughs> where the United States wins the case in the trial court and wins the case in the Court of Appeals. None of those checking mechanisms that just, that were just described apply in those situations. And what I learned the hard way. Because, be, I mean, because if the, yeah. because if the, uh, United States has won, then the, you don't have to you're not appealing, so you don't have to ask for permission to appeal principally. And so what I learned the hard way is that the cases in which we systematically got whacked um, were al- almost invariably cases in which the United States had one in the trial court and one in the courts of appeals. And there's one particularly vivid experience I have where Paul completely <laughs> slaughtered me in a case, a case <laughs> called Bond, which was uh, about uh, an enterprising assistant United States attorney attorney. Indicted a a woman under a federal criminal statute that was designed to implement the uh, chemical weapons treaty, but this woman was indicted for uh, putting some mildly toxic chemicals on the doorknob of her husband's uh, girlfriend. Uh, And amazingly enough, the indictment stuck in the district court and stuck (laughs) and, and stuck in the court of appeals. And then got up to the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court granted review on the case. You know, Paul made a very persuasive case that review was warranted. And, you know, we're up there and there's virtually no way to defend it. And there were were a bunch of cases during my tenure where the United States actually lost and lost nine nothing in criminal context. And so I tried to make it my mission to convince the U.S. attorney community that this had to stop, that our credibility was being squandered and that uh, they had to, We had to find some way to get these charging decisions more in line and that there was a sentiment building in the Supreme Court that the federal government was, you know, over, uh, over federal criminalizing uh, wide areas of conduct.
0: Well, and what uh, did you want them to do? Check with you before the, before, no, the court of appeals it was more, level? No, it
3: was more like an exercise in evangelism that, you know, we can't—just for the reason said you can't review everything that happens that every federal lawyer uh, files, every decision a federal lawyer makes— So, you know, be cognizant that we're damaging our credibility here with these aggressive indictments. But as I said, you know, the basic answer I got back is, hey, system runs on plea bargaining. We've yeah. got to indict aggressively. If some moron doesn't take the right. plea, yeah. you'll have to clean it up for us. Yeah. And I was thinking that. about this when so, you said that yeah. the equivalent yeah.
0: of of what your U.S. attorney friend as a prosecutor, that you you often tell this to an agent and they say, oh, they'll bar- plea bargain. Don't worry about it. And you're yeah. you're, you're let to yeah. explain your job. Right. But There's also, situ- I, if okay. I could just interrupt. This is, this is <laughs> not
1: unique to the federal government. Yeah. But, you know, trial I, – I started out my life as a trial lawyer. I didn't really know anything about appeals – actually, until I got appointed to argue one in the Supreme Court. You know, the trial lawyer's perspective is, hey, look, my job is to win my case, right? right? If I win my case, all I tell the appellate lawyer is just don't blow it, right? But if you do, it's not on me. I won. So the fact that Don keeps losing nine to nothing, (laughs) these sort of lay down cases where we're getting convictions, they're getting affirmed on appeal, talking to a bunch of people who are handling trial dockets saying, hey, we're looking terrible here. They're like, what do you mean? We like you are looking yeah. terrible. There was some here. of that too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: no, I mean, well, I mean, it really is true. I think it's a general phenomenon, and but it applies to the DOJ. There's in any U.S. Attorney's office. There's a kind of a, you know, cowboy sensibility for the trial lawyers, and a nerdy one for the for the appellate lawyers. And you can you can guess, you know, who who is the captain of the softball team, as it were. Another context is uh, whether the.
3: What, what position the government's going to take as an amicus in a case where the yes, court's granted and the right. government's not a party. You have that process you just described, Harry. But you, you know, the one feature of it is that very often, at least in my experience, different parts of the federal government would have very different views about what position yes. the United States ought to take. And in you know, my tenure, there were several cases that came up uh, involving questions of immunity in US courts for foreign government officials or for foreign governments. And there was a real divide within the executive branch. You, know, you had in the, in the Obama administration, at least the State Department and others with a very strong human rights focus, saying we ought to have a position that uh, it tends to be against affording broad immunity. And then you had the Defense Department and the intelligence community saying, no, no, we need to recognize broad immunity, because if uh, we don't right. recognize it here, we're not going to get the benefit of it in foreign countries. And a big part of the job was resolving conflicts Yeah, I mean, like that. were you
0: kind of looking for the seam between that each part wouldn't be too, or were you just looking for the right answer about so, the long-term so, judgment?
3: That, it's Funny I mean, it's you a, ask that, because yeah. the, the first one of these that I confronted in my first year as SG, I looked for the seam. Right. It was a big mistake. Because uh-huh. <laughs> what I did was anger everyone. <laughs> Nobody in the government liked what I did. Nobody in the court liked what I did. So it was a good lesson to learn in my first year that, you know, after that, I, I just said, no, we're going to figure out the right answer okay. here. Yeah. We're not going to please everybody.
0: I yeah, wonder and, if either and, of you no. two could have had sort of particularly tough judgment calls that you could now describe and remember, unless they're confidential in some way. Do you remember similar instances?
2: Well, I, I was going to say, just to, to Don's point, I mean, you know, sometimes there is a seam So sometimes you can you can find it and sometimes, you know, the, the, the federal government has some tools available to it that sometimes allow you to find a way through. I mean, you know, kind of a typical situation is if there's a private sector case involving an employment discrimination statute, the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department wants you to take the plaintiff's side of the case for good reason, because the Civil Rights Division enforces the civil rights laws as to a lot of state and local governments but at the same time the civil division would come in and say no you got to take the employer's side of this case because the federal government happens to be the nation's largest employer and we the civil division defend all those cases so you have to be on the employer side you know you can't be on both sides sometimes as don says you just got to pick and there isn't a seam sometimes though you can say well You know, there's sovereign immunity or there's, you know, maybe there's a way to argue that the statute doesn't apply to the federal government as an employer the same way. So you you look for the seam, I think. But I think the lesson is there in in many of these cases, it's there's no seam. It's a tough call. That's why you have the job. So you have to figure out how you're going to make the call. Probably the, the, the toughest one that I can remember that, you know, I can't probably get into the details, but just to give you the dynamic of how tough this can be. Um, As Seth mentioned, as long as you have a brief filed in the lower courts, an amicus brief in the Court of Appeals by one of the entities, part of the Justice Department or the lawyers of a cabinet department, all of that has to get approved by the Solicitor General. But the so-called independent agencies, the SEC, the FTC, they have independent litigating authority in the lower courts. And so sometimes you can get in very tricky situations and I had a case where in the Second Circuit, the Justice Department's Antitrust division had filed on one side of the case, and the SEC had filed on the opposite side of the case and my job <laughs> as SG like was <laughs> to file an amicus brief in the Supreme Court because by the way the Supreme Court noticed this delicious problem and Immediately called for the views of the Solicitor General.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so, by the way, so just a quick. Well, uh, you know, the the court often will, and it's a very important function of the uh, the the SG's office. Will it will reach out and say, Solicitor General, tell us your views, and that obviously that's going to be a very important uh, brief to write. But well, let's yes, let's not
1: overstate that. Um, the SG's the U.S. the Supreme Court never does that with respect to any case as to which it's already decided to review this is something this is a practice that developed in cases at the stage where the supreme court is deciding should we take this case or shouldn't we take this case because the supreme That's court has discretionary jurisdiction in the most for the most part it gets i don't know 10,000 petitions for review every year to hear what now is about 70 cases on the merits. The United States, um, when it's not a party, the United States by statute has the right to file an amicus brief in any case at any stage without permission from anybody. But the U.S. usually doesn't step in at the petition stage. To say to the court well you know there's this there's this litigation between you know harry litman and don virilli they've got this big dispute and we just thought we'd advise you that we think you should take the right. case or not it is extraordinarily unusual yes. for the united states uninvited to file right. an amicus brief telling the supreme court whether it should or shouldn't take a case and that's because there's an understanding that when one or more justices thinks that their decision about whether to grant review or not could be impacted by the government's view about whether it should and the government's view on the merits it will ask.
2: How many times have you been delayed or detoured around roadway construction in Southern California and wondered, what's going on? How long will this take to complete? And why is it even necessary? Now you can find out. Join John Hakel, Executive Director of Rebuild SoCal Partnership, on his organization's new podcast, The Rebuild SoCal Zone, as he interviews industry titans and others that will help answer these types of questions. Listeners can get insight about vital infrastructure projects throughout the region and other information on SoCal's only infrastructure-focused podcast. This thought-provoking podcast will cover current and upcoming projects, improvements being made, how they impact communities, and also learn how this essential work is creating jobs and will help grow the local economy. The Rebuild SoCal Zone podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe and listen.
0: Harry here with a quick shout out for our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp matches you with an online therapist picked especially based on your needs. It's not self-help, it's genuine therapy, but more convenient, affordable, and confidential than traditional therapy. And if you want to try it with a discount for the first session, you can go to betterhelp.com talkingfeds talking feds. That's betterhelp.com talkingfeds talking feds. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, and, so you were playing out this this yeah, delicious so, uh, dilemma here. Right. So the classic
2: case yeah. where the court asked for the views of the Solicitor General is when they have one of these private party cases, and there's clearly a federal issue in the case, and the federal government hasn't filed a brief yet. And so they want to know what the federal government's view is. But that wasn't this case. This case, some devilish law clerk looked at the record and realized the federal government's on both sides of this case. <laughs> so we don't know what... The Solicitor General thinks, but we know what the Justice Department thinks. We know what the SEC thinks. And we know that, you know, the poor, poor SG has to represent Mm -hmm. both of them here in this, you know, this court. And so that was the one where, you know, bringing those folks together in one room when they were already on record as taking opposite sides on this immunity issue, which was the, the the question in the case, whether there was kind of implied immunity from the securities laws um, for an antitrust action. It was a real difficult process to get to a position because neither, neither of these agencies were off on a frolic and a detour. The antitrust division of the Justice Department thinks, why would there be an implied immunity to the antitrust laws? And the SEC thinks, why are you messing with our rational enforcement of the securities laws. So something has to give. Um, That was a case where we offered Mm -hmm. the courts something of a seam and the argument went reasonably well, but, you know, and this is something I think both of these gentlemen can, can relate to sometimes when a case is that contentious within the government and you do spend a lot of time in the meetings more than usual coming up with a position That's a case that I thought I should argue myself in the Supreme Court. That wasn't one where I thought I should dole that out to somebody else because so much work went into kind of
0: fashioning a position that, again, it was one that nobody really liked, but everybody could live with. By the way, these cases that you described where you're going up and you're getting bludgeoned, I know— do you know it in advance? Do you know I'm walking oh, yeah. up to the court? I'm going to bond. Maybe yeah, do, yeah, in particular.
3: Gonna, yeah. That, that, I knew it was going to be. In fact, similarly, it was a similar, different scenario than the one Paul described. But I also thought that was a case that the SG ought to argue yeah. because uh, it wouldn't be fair for anybody yeah, else to, I I to go I guess I would it. say,
1: I don't know about my my friends here. My view about it was, look, whatever the reason people go work in the Solicitor General's office is they want to have the opportunity to argue in the Supreme Court. You know, I had I'm going to have plenty of opportunities to argue in the Supreme Court or elsewhere. I only argued those cases where I thought it was a situation like the situation where Paul and Don are describing where there's going to be heavy flack coming from all directions and I ought to stand up and take it. Or it's an issue of such incredible consequence that the expectation is that the politically appointed Senate confirmed person is going to be up there explaining what the views of the United States are. The other thing I think is worth mentioning, and again, this is keying off of something, Harry, that you said at the outset is, you know, the client doesn't make the decision. So the client is an elusive concept when you're talking about the United States, right? Who is the client in the case? The client is the United States government as a democratically elected Republican form of government. The role of the SG is not to make policy with respect to what federal law should be. That's made by Congress when it enacts legislation, the the various regulatory agencies when they promulgate implementing regulations themselves. The role of the SG is to make strategic and tactical decisions about what positions as to the meaning of law and how law should be interpreted and applied are in the long-term interests of the government. So my example, I mean, I'm any one of us can think of lots of instances in which there were you know, six or seven different government agencies having written memos to the SG, sitting at a at a conference room table, and everybody has a slightly different take on what position you should take in the case, and you have to resolve those. Um, you know, I think probably the the most notable example I had, um, and I, I can I've talked about this publicly before, so I, I guess I can do it here. Is there was a A case that arose called Dickerson versus United States, which was a bank robbery prosecution in the Eastern District of Virginia involving a a robbery in Alexandria, Virginia. And it involved a question, a Miranda question. Now, Miranda versus Arizona was a case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 1968 and decided that you know, essentially in order to protect the guarantees against self-incrimination represented by the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution and the right to representation and the advice of counsel in the Sixth Amendment, that criminal suspects in the custody of the police had to be advised of certain rights, the Miranda rights, which now everybody around the world knows. At the time the Supreme Court was deciding Miranda versus Arizona, It was an extraordinarily controversial proposition that these prophylactic warnings had to be given. The United States was not a party in the case. This was a criminal prosecution by the state of Arizona against Mr. Miranda. Nonetheless, Thurgood Marshall, the aforementioned Thurgood Marshall, champion of criminal defendants' rights, filed an amicus brief on behalf of the United States as Solicitor General, urging the Supreme Court not to adopt the rule that it adopted and require as a matter of constitutional prophylaxis that these warnings be given. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court ruled the way that it did. Congress got up on its hind legs and promptly passed a provision of the 1968 Crime Bill that purported to quote overrule Miranda versus Arizona. It passed a law that said in any criminal prosecution in the courts of the United States, a custodial statement given by a defendant will be admissible so long as it is not involuntary within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. That provision, I think it was called 35018, USA 3501. 3501, was promptly ignored by every solicitor general, and attorney general in Democratic, Republican, uber-Democratic, uber-Republican administrations. In the Dickerson case, I very much remember this. I got an appeal recommendation because the defendant in the case had filed a motion to suppress a statement that the defendant had given when the police came to his house to arrest him. And he they took the position that This was a custodial statement and that he hadn't been given his Miranda warnings. That prevailed in the district court and the assistant United States attorney who lost the case got permission from his boss, the U.S. attorney, to seek permission to appeal, which the criminal division reviewed and authorized. And I got this. I remember looking at it late one night looking at the statement, which didn't seem like it was really inculpatory in any way. And I called the assistant United States attorney that night and said, do you really need this? I mean, this guy didn't admit to anything. And he somehow convinced me that, you know, they did for some reason. So I authorized the appeal.
0: Well, wait, but the appeal was going to be on the basis of 3501?
1: So so 3501 wasn't, I had never, at the time, I had never even heard of 3501. (laughs)
0: And you had done
1: criminal work, actually. I, yes. And, you know, unsurprisingly, I had never heard of this rule. So it went up on appeal. On appeal, a panel of the Fourth Circuit decided, yep, he was in custody. Yep, it is inculpatory. Nope, he wasn't given his Miranda warnings. But that doesn't, even though nobody has argued this in the case, That doesn't matter because there is this provision, 3501, which says it doesn't matter. And therefore, we're going to reverse the district court. So the petitioner, the prisoner, files a cert petition. And the question then becomes, Mm. am I, as the Solicitor General, going to defend the constitutionality of Section thirty five hundred one. Am I going to oppose the position? Right, just
0: and just a you know a quick sentence about your normal obligations to defend constitutionality. So, so this is coming at you like a freight train now.
1: Right. Yeah. So the the Solicitor General has you know by custom and I think by duty the responsibility to defend the constitutionality of acts of Congress, provided that there is a reasonable argument that can be made that a law is constitutional that doesn't necessarily require asking the court to overrule an existing precedent to the contrary. Um, And Paul has also mentioned that there is also an exception that involves the question of executive power vis-a-vis other branches of government. But this was a case in which the question really was, is this, is 3501 constitutional in light of Miranda? And if not, are we going to ask the Supreme Court to overrule Miranda versus the United States?
0: <laughs> I, <to> Seth <laughs>
1: so I, um, we had the most exquisitely inclusive process of consultation about this. Uh, the first question was, you know, is Miranda, does Miranda impose a constitutional mandate? Because if it doesn't, the 3501 is constitutional. But given the fact that Miranda versus Arizona was a case involving a state prosecution and the three or four dozen post Miranda cases in which the court applied the rule are all the same, it's somebody versus New York and somebody versus Florida. And the Supreme court has no authority to dictate to states what their criminal procedure should be unless the Constitution requires it, I came to the conclusion, which I think is really inarguable, that the only way that 3501 could be defended is by asking the Supreme Court to reconsider Miranda. And so I went to the Attorney General and discussed this, and I said what I propose to do is canvass the federal law enforcement establishment to determine whether or not we want to as a policy matter, asked the court to overrule Miranda versus Arizona. And I invited the each federal law enforcement agency to do an analysis and prepare a memo for me explaining whether Miranda had helped in their efforts, respects in which they lost convictions or couldn't prosecute cases because of the Miranda rules, and to provide me information about that. Every single one of them sent a memo in saying, on it's a net winner for law enforcement because mm-hmm. if you w- want, all you have to do is tell a court that the defendant was given his Miranda warnings it's very hard to make an argument that the statement was involuntary the attorney general and I then convened a meeting of all the US attorneys in the country in South Carolina to talk with them about the case we invited them all to send memos in and I then s- Thought I should let the pre, you know, go talk to the president about this. Um, he was Bill Clinton was a big law enforcement president. He was very proud of his whatever it is five hundred thousand new cops program. And I went over with the attorney general and the deputy attorney general to the White House and met in the cabinet room with the president and the vice president to say, look, I, you know, this is my view. This is what I've decided. I've talked with the attorney general. The attorney general agrees, but. Um, you know, I've looked at the Constitution. Uh, and Article two says all the executive power of the United States is in the president. Somehow doesn't get around to mentioning the solicitor general. So, you know, you need to tell me if you're comfortable with this or not, because if you decide that, you know, as a policy matter, you want to ask the Supreme Court to overrule Miranda versus Arizona, that's your decision.
0: And I think we know what happened. What a fantastic story. Um, it also, I mean, I, so I'd like to turn to these sort of rich set of questions that we probably can't do justice to, and they're very nuanced, but I think we've, you know, different things uh, all of you have said kind of uh, uh, point in that direction. And that is the, ta- the, the, um, spe- the, the relationship of authority and custom uh, vis-a-vis, well, between the solicitor general and the president, the solicitor general and the court there. I mean, presumably something about the continuity of law and the positions you take before the court um, suggests a, a view that was, I think, in in vogue and maybe has abated. But I want to ask you that, like, in some way you have almost independent uh, kind of obeisance or, or responsibility to. The, the, the court, even though you're, as, as Seth says, you know, article two seems, seems pretty plain. You know, then, then also you, we've the, the notion of the special responsibility to Congress to make any good faith argument. So what I'm kind of looking at is the, the ways in which the line of authority. Let me take a step back. One very easy thing to say. It's. It's all up to the president. When need be, you check in with the president. Otherwise, you make your best decisions. That's all there is. But I think that wouldn't capture the broader understanding that SGs have brought to the job that have to do with special consideration toward the court, maybe toward the Congress. And I just wonder if you can speak to that. Let's just start with the notion of is it, is there any way you think in which you'll, the SGs, um, Professional and governmental obligations to the Supreme Court can conflict with the president's commands or views of where the government should be. Is that a cogent question? Uh, Yeah, so Don, do you have... Uh, Sure. Um, It might
3: help to talk about it in in terms of a concrete situation. Um, One of the issues I had to grapple with late in my tenure was about the status of Puerto Rico. There was a case called Sansas Valle, and it brought up the question of whether for double jeopardy purposes, Puerto Rico should be considered as the same sovereign as the United States or a different sovereign, Puerto Rico being a territory. Uh, and that was a situation in which the government of Puerto Rico very, very much wanted the United States government to say that Puerto Rico was a separate sovereign. There was a strong dignity interest there, and it was real, and I respected it. And The leadership in the Puerto Rico government was very vociferous about the importance of the United States agreeing and and went to the White House and spoke to the president and, you know, worked worked the White House very aggressively. And the White House communicated those views um, to me and
0: how, by the way? Who uh, called
3: not, you? Not by – it not, wasn't the president, nothing yeah. like that. So who but calls you then? The, what, well, they didn't – position? Here's what they – they asked me whether I would take a call from the governor of Puerto Rico, <laughs> 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 which I did, and 90 minutes later, it, you know. And then they asked me whether I would take a call from the minister of justice of Puerto Rico, which I did, mm-hmm. and then, you know, another 90 minutes. Of, um, so uh, – but anyway, it was evident what what they would have preferred, but I felt like the – basic point there was that the sovereignty of Puerto Rico and it's recognized in its constitution had been delegated by a statute from Congress. And that if I were to say Puerto Rico was a separate sovereign, I would basically be saying that Congress in the future wouldn't have the power to change its mind about what the right form of territorial government would be. And that just wasn't a responsible thing to do for a solicitor general to give away the constitutional authority of Congress like that, and that, therefore, whatever I might think about the dignitary interests and how, and they were really important, I thought. Uh, and it the just, political right.
0: interests, presumably. And the political
3: you, interests were aligned differently. You just, just, had, couldn't, yeah. just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. And, and, you, and so, so you said... So I said, I'm not doing it. And, and a that letter, was
0: that. A, no, you just... No, we just, just, left just left took the, the position
3: yeah. we took, and that was that.
0: How, now, what about, okay, me, well, here's one way to put it. When, when you've ever... I mean, that says a lot right there. Uh You know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I have broader responsibilities, including to the court in Congress. I just I just can't do it. Would, in your experience, a, a White House tend to understand the broader responsibilities of solicitor general and say, OK, in uh, that. I mean, I'm sure it's contextual, but but it, is there is there some understanding of a greater sort of sphere of of uh, of. Operation to that, as opposed to other executive branch officials? So, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on the issue. I think it
2: depends a little bit on the president and the White House. So, I don't think there's a sort of preset answer to that question. I mean, the way I would sort of come at this is to say that one of the things that makes the Solicitor General such a great privilege to have that job and to work in that office. Um, for those that have heard of it, is that you are at the crossroads of the separation of powers.
0: Yeah, please explain. I mean,
2: you know what? You know, there's just you have you have you're on the organizational chart just for the executive branch, and you're not that close to the top. So, in one sense, you're just sort of you know the fourth ranking person at the Justice Department. But on another hand, in a way that's not really true, of the top three people at the Justice Department or many other executive branch officials, you really do have responsibilities at some level, maybe not trumping responsibilities, but you have responsibilities to Congress and the Supreme Court. They're manifested. In what's the source of them? The The source of them ultimately, I think, is what's in the long-term interests of the federal government. So ultimately, I think they have to trace my own views. They have to trace back to Article 2.
0: Really? I'm I Just very quickly, do you guys yes. both agree with what he just said?
1: it's undoubtedly true that the solicitor general is an officer of the in the executive branch of the united states but as paul i think is suggesting the nature of the position has always almost always been understood to require a a rather unique level of independent decision making in order to in the, inter- in the interest in the interests of the long term interests of the United States government, in order to establish a special relationship of trust with the Supreme Court as an institution, and frankly Congress as an institution over time. I mean, there yeah. one of our predecessors, Rex Lee, who was a Solicitor General uh, under President Reagan you know, was once asked to or told, strongly encouraged to take a particular position in the Solicitor General and in in the Supreme Court. And what he famously said is, I am the Solicitor General of the United States, not the Pamphleteer General of the United (laughs) States.
0: And I want to get back to you, but I'll just say it's my understanding and you guys know much better. Uh, First, I I think your position's totally unassailable but I think like 15 20 years ago there was as a, a pretty a, a real current of opinion that that would have said it's almost there's some extra things outside of article 2 almost and there you know some sense of actual s- constitutional responsibility that that doesn't derive I I, I don't think it's defensible but it but I think you know it was a real debate for a time okay but back to separation of powers crossroads. so, so
2: and and I think you can there, there are at least two manifestations of the special kind of relationship, but not ultimately one that gets you out of Article 2. But one is that the SG has a physical office at the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. I think if any one of us decided to move there permanently, we'd probably get kicked out. But it's, you know, (laughs) it's there for your convenience before you argue cases. But it is a physical manifestation that you have maybe not a foot in another branch of government, but maybe a toe. Um, and then with respect to the decision that we all talked about, which I think is one of the most sensitive decisions that a solicitor general can make to not defend the constitutionality of an act of Congress, there's a process where either the solicitor general or the attorney general then has to send a letter to Congress to notify Congress of the decision, which sort of in a backhanded way underscores that Congress is relying on the solicitor general's office to defend the constitutionality of their handiwork as a kind of default basis. And so it's, you know, when you're defending it, you're discharging an article two executive branch, take care function, but you're doing it, you know, kind of the, you know, intended beneficiary in some respects is the Congress. So that's why there are these um, unique lines of communication, if not authority. And just to tell one story about how, Sometimes, although, again, if you look at the organizational chart, you can't tell why the Solicitor General has any independence from the executive branch. But the practice, in part because it is in the long-term interest of the executive branch to have somebody who's looking out for the longer term and not the immediate policy, it does create this kind of aura of independence. If that's the right word, there's probably a better one. But when I was Solicitor General, one of the kind of separation of powers disputes of the day was happened when other lawyers in the executive branch decided it was a good idea for the first time in constitutional history to execute a search warrant on a congressional office. And they, as a result of the search warrant, procured some documents that were, you know, arguably were subject to speech or debate clause privileges And they executed the search warrant without giving a prior heads up to the Speaker of the House, who, let's just say, registered some umbrage. (laughs) And so there was this real kind of separation of powers kerfuffle over these documents. And the agents that were responsible for the particular prosecution of the congressman at issue hadn't actually reviewed the documents yet. And so as part of the solution to get sort of both the just the rest of the Justice Department and the House to calm down, an agreement was reached to essentially have a cooling-off period, and during the 30-day cooling-off period, the documents were basically supposedly kind of put beyond the reach of the rest of the Justice Department, and who did they give the documents to? <laughs> the Solicitor General. And... You know, there's, there's even, like, a memo that memorializes the agreement, and the memo says, after 30 days, the documents will be returned to the Justice Department. And I always <laughs> no, love that line, that because it's like, idea. where the heck do you think my office is? <laughs> right. It's on the fifth floor of the Justice Department, just down the hall no, from the Attorney General. But it was still an acceptable compromise to put those documents with the Solicitor General for 30 days. Um Another great story
0: without um, you don't have to give the details, but I just wanted just a yes or no. Did any of you ever encounter a situation where it went back and forth, back and forth? And the president of the United States said or spokesperson, that's it. I, I've decided to do it my way, my way or the hot, you know.
1: No, I did not have that.
0: I can
2: say no, at least during my time as SG. Okay.
1: No, during my time as SG, I have a wonderful story in which this happened, Don't let us hold you back. but I, it's, it didn't happen when I was SG, so.
0: Studio audience, what we do we think about that we want to hear it anyway? How long did, how long does it, maybe not. Okay. Uh, that's all we got. Thank you so much, Seth, Paul, and Don. Thank you very much. Listeners. Thank you, George Washington University for being here and hosting us. Thank You're you. I mean, You it's can great. stay around for the <laughs> final. No, 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 no. We, 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 great. I think we know where you're going with that. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of our legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer with additional research by Sam Trachtenberg. Production assistance by Richard Gunther and Sarah Philippoum. Thank you very much to GW Law for hosting us. And thanks to Hayden Pendergrass of the GW Law Student Bar Association as well as the GW Criminal Law Society and the GW Immigration Law Society are co-sponsors for this event. Thanks very much to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo LLC. I'm Harry Litman. See you next time.